0: Welcome to the Certified OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS test.
1: Today we're going to go over the CPG for ankle ligament sprains. So we're going to start with a little bit of definition because I think it's important as we work through some of this. They say that ankle stability relates to the post-acute period and includes studies for the purpose of this CPG that enrolled subjects with primary concerns of instability, weakness, limited balance response, and intermittent swelling. Chronic ankle instability is a term that's commonly applied to individual with that set of complaints. However, a definitive and uniform uh, application criteria to diagnose this chronic ankle instability has not been developed. Therefore, the classification of instability is the best label for these individuals and is what's used throughout the guideline, but know that it's a little bit of a loose, a loose cluster of findings. So I just think that's important to mention as we go through this. First thing we're gonna discuss is the incidence of lateral ankle sprains. I'm sure this is something we've all seen a lot of in the clinic if you're working in any kind of sports and orthopedic clinic. Um, I don't think a lot of this will be groundbreaking to most of us, but it's really important information. The incidence of ankle sprains was highest in 15- to 19-year-olds. No difference noted between males and females. However, males between 14 and 24 years of age and females older than 30 had a higher incidence compared to their respective counterparts. They say nearly half of all ankle sprains occurred during an athletic activity, with basketball being the highest, followed by football, followed by soccer. The ankle joint was found to account for ten to thirty-four percent of all sport-related injuries, with lateral ankle sprains comprising seventy-seven to eighty-three percent of those injuries. So, by far, it's going to be the largest percentage of ankle injuries that you see. Um, The rate of lateral ankle sprains is noteworthy. A systematic review, um, sorry, of re-injuries is noteworthy. Um, a systematic review noted that re-injury occurred anywhere from 3 to 34% of patients, and I think this is something when you're treating these in the clinic, a lot of times I find that the ones I see in the clinic typically aren't first offenders. Um, I'll often see someone in at their second or third one, and that's the first time they're getting therapy because a lot of times the first time, they, it, they're they just managed conservatively on their own, and then when it becomes more of a reoccurrent problem, when they end up getting treatment. So the rev- this systematic review found the time between the initial injury to a second injury varied greatly with a time frame ranging anywhere from two weeks after the initial injury to 96 months. So, you know, I can't say that in the clinic I see any real defined amount of time, but just know that there's a high rate of re-injury. They also suggest, which I think is kind of points to what I just said, that the overall incidence of lateral ankle sprain is probably underestimated because approximately 50% of those people who sustain a lateral ankle sprain don't actually seek attention after their injury. I think a lot of times they seek attention either when it's fallen into that chronic stage or they're two or three recurrent injuries deep. So the most common mechanism of injury often occurs with forefoot adduction, hindfoot internal rotation, ankle inversion and plantar flexion, and then an external rotation of the leg beyond what the anatomical constraints can handle. The injury mechanism may result when landing from a jump, stepping into a hole, or landing on a competitor's foot during sports. I think those are probably all common subjective reports that we see. And a lateral ankle sprain is a partial or complete disruption of the lateral ankle ligaments which include the anterior, anterior talofibular ligament, the calcaneal fibular ligament, and the posterior talofibular ligament. Up to 73% of lateral ankle sprains involve isolated ATFL injuries, which is the anterior tal- talofibular ligament. Injury to the posterior talofibular ligament is rare in isolation. Um, so know that if there's an injury there, there's probably an injury to other structures before that. And then combined subtalar medial and or syndesmotic sprains can occur concurrently with a lateral ankle sprain, but are reported less often. I also think um, you will not often see those injuries in isolation. Typically, you're going to see a lateral ankle injury first, followed by one of those other injuries. Um, They can contribute, so the combined injuries can contribute to chronic concerns regarding pain, instability, and limitation in activities. The other structures that can be injured include the lateral subtalar ligaments, the peroneal tendons, nerve injuries, extensor and peroneal retinacular injuries, um, the inferior tibiofibular ligament, and osteochondral lesions of the talus or the tibial plafond. So then they go into a little bit more detail about very specific pathoanatomic features. We're going to go into these a little bit. Know that this section is quite wordy in terms of the anatomical review about where these ligaments run. I'm going to highlight a little bit of it, but if you're unfamiliar with this, I would definitely read this section. So the first structure, our most commonly injured ligament with lateral ankle sprains is the anterior, anterior talofibular ligament or the ATFL. It's an extra articular ligament of the talocrural joint. Its fibers course laterally from the talus in the transverse plane and superiorly between the sagittal and frontal planes to attach on the anterior distal tip of the lateral malleolus or the fibula. It provides the primary restraint to the inversion movement when the ankle is in a plantar flex position. Approximately half of the sprains involving the ATFL are avulsions from the fibula with the other half being mid-substance tears. Damage to the ligaments is dependent on the ankle and foot position at the time of injury, the velocity of the mechanism, and the velocity of the mechanism of injury. The ATFL demonstrates a lower maximal load tolerance before failure compared to the posterior talofibular ligament and that calcaneal fibular ligament, which is part of the reason why it's injured so much more frequently. The next one they mentioned is the calcaneal fibular ligament. It's also an extra articular ligament of the tail joint. It crosses both the ankle and the subtalar joints, and the ligament is stronger and thicker than the ATFL. So although tension with the ligament increases with dorsiflexion, it resists ankle inversions throughout the full range of ankle range of motion. So I think that's important to know. I think it may go against what we think biomechanically is most correct, but just know that it's most taut in dorsiflexion, however, resists inversion throughout the full range. The posterior tibiofibular talofibular ligament um, runs from the posterior medial portion of the fibula to the lateral tubercle on the posterior aspect of the talus. It's intracapsular but extrasynovial, and it's the strongest of the lateral ligaments and primarily functions to provide transverse plane rotary stability. So, movements that involve extreme ankle dorsiflexion, foot external rotation, and pronation, along with limb internal rotation, may cause injury to this ligament. The next couple are uh, less commonly injured, so we're not going to go into as much detail about these. But the lateral subtalar ligaments are parallel and blend in with the posterior fibers of the calcaneal fibular ligament and the lateral talocalcaneal ligament crosses the posterior subtalar joint is is considered weaker and smaller than the calcaneal fibular ligament. The subtalar ligament sprains are reported after inversion injuries with subtalar instability noted in 10 to 25% of those with lateral ankle instability. So what they're saying there is that in those folks that have lateral ankle instability, a percentage of them are also going to present with subtalar instability after they've had this inversion injury and likely those lateral subtalar ligaments are the culprit. Unlike the ATFL, the calcaneofibular ligament and the posterior, posterior talofibular ligament, the lateral talocalcaneal ligament does not cross the ankle joint. However, with recurrent ankle sprains, greater loads are placed on them and can contribute to those chronic symptoms including the instability. The extensor and fibular retinacula so the peron- also known as the peroneal retinacula, if you know it, is that contribute to ankle and hind foot stability primarily due to their anatomical orientation. But essentially, the inferior extensor retinaculum courses from the tip of the lateral malleolus to insert on the lateral calcaneus and the sinus tarsi. It also blends in with the inferior fibular retinaculum and may improve evertor muscle function. So I think that's the key there is that it works to help improve that. Function of those everters, which is often impaired, I think. The actual prevalence of injury to the retinaculum is not well defined. However, the fibular and extensor retinaculum may be injured in conjunction with lateral ankle sprains and, again, potentially contribute to that chronic pain and instability and peroneal tendon subluxation. So, I think the important thing to know about those last couple there is that if you're getting someone with a lot of these chronic symptoms that don't seem to be resolving, doesn't seem to be an isolated ATFL issue, perhaps looking a little bit deeper at some of these other structures and how the subtalar joint may be supported or be partially unstable um, could be contributing to some of that chronicity. The next thing they discuss are the lower limb neuromuscular structures. So dynamic stabilization of the ankle complex is dependent on the adjacent musculature and laterally includes the peroneus longus and brevis, the tibialis anterior and extensor digitorum longus and brevis are part of eccentric control to ankle plantar flexion. And because the lateral ankle sprains are commonly occurring plantar flexion, those muscles are thought to protect against injury. However, both peripheral and central reactions of a muscle response are likely too slow to protect against a sudden inversion force. So, what they're saying there is that the ligaments ultimately end up being the primary restraint because the muscle function just doesn't happen fast enough when you have those sudden inversion forces during sports and um, dynamic activities. They say a lateral ankle sprain not only affects local musculature, but may also lead to proximal muscle weakness of the bilateral glute max, biceps femoris, and lumbar rectospinae. Um, abnormal hip muscle activation has been found after ankle inversion movements and those with ankle hypermobility. So, local sensory changes may also occur after a lateral ankle sprain, which I think a lot of people will see. And sensory changes can occur in the joint receptors and the cutaneous nerves, such as the sural nerve and the distal superficial peroneal nerve. So, I think the important thing to know there is we need to not all of our eggs in the basket of every lateral ankle sprain is attributed to an ATFL injury. Yes, that's most common. However, you need to make sure you're looking at all of these other factors, including other ligamentous stability, other muscle function, all the way up the chain. You know, I think we can all agree that, yes, some ankle sprains are unavoidable. However, some ankle sprains that we see in the clinic, probably are contributed to by not enough proximal control and proximal strength and stability. So like we talked about in a lot of the knee CPG episode podcast episodes, it's important to make sure you're screening the whole patient and helping the whole patient. And oftentimes that means working other joints. Um, they also say the role of the neuromuscular elements in chronic pain and subjective instability is controversial and needs further study, which is true. We don't have a lot of hard and fast evidence on that. However, you know, there's no harm in improving some of that while someone's in the clinic. Add on any of that regarding Alexis, um, regarding the ankle sprains, the anatomic features of them? No,
0: I think that's all pretty straightforward. What we're
1: going to move into now, if you're following along, is the clinical course. So clinical course of lateral ankle sprains suggests that Generally, there's a rapid decrease in pain and improved function in the first two weeks after the injury. However, 5% to 33% of patients continue to have pain at one year or longer, with 5% to 25% still experiencing pain after three years. So what that tells us is there's a large percentage, can be up to a large percentage of patients with lateral ankle sprains that end up moving into that fairly chronic stage. The residual complaints or problems that patients often will present with include pain most often complaints of instability, crepitus, weakness, stiffness, and swelling. And the percentage of individuals with a subjective report of full recovery ranged between 50 and 85% at three years after the injury and seemed to be independent of the severity of the sprain. So you can see that's a fairly large percentage of people that feel like they have not fully recovered. Um, You know, that can be anywhere from 15 to 50%. So I think one thing that always seems to come up in discussions of lateral ankle sprains is, well, if we got these people in the clinic sooner after their first injury and not their second, third, fourth, or fifth, would we be able to improve that? And I say probably. Um, I think a lot of people that try to rehab their first ankle sprain on their own feel like they get most of the way there, but I would question whether or not they're doing the right things. Acute lateral ankle sprains can vary greatly in their presentation um, with respect to the amount of edema, the amount of pain range of motion limitation, and loss of function. Those with acute lateral ankle sprains can present with sensory motor motor deficits, which we just talked about. The sensory motor functions um, include proprioception, postural control, reflex reactions to inversion perturbation, alpha motor neuron pool excitability, and muscle strength. Proprioceptive and postural control deficits have been a been identified in those with acute ankle sprains. So you'll see. I think that's important as we move into the examination and treatment section um, that really a lot of it focuses on those proprioceptive and postural control deficits. Once the acute symptoms have resolved in these folks, patients are categorized as being in the subacute phases of tissue healing, which include fibroplasia and remodeling. During these phases, patients often experience weakness, impaired balance response, stiffness, swelling decreased function and instability, the symptoms and signs can contribute past the subacute phase, often for several years, and can contribute to those suboptimal outcomes, which is what we were just talking about in terms of the number of people that feel like they haven't reached a full recovery at three years. At this point, these are the people that typically receive the common diagnosis of ankle instability. So we're gonna talk for a minute about the different types of ankle instability, but no, like I said at the beginning, there's not a hard and fast way to diagnose these patients into, into specific groups. So the first one they discuss is mechanical ankle instability. And it, that term's used to describe those who have ex, truly have excessive joint motion, whereas a functional ankle instability describes those patients who report instability but seem to have normal joint motion. Those patients with mechanical instability may not only have laxity in the tail accrual joint, but also the subtalar joint, um, which is where I was talking about those other ligamentous structures potentially being jeopardized. It's been hypothesized that functional ankle instability results from those sensory motor and our neuromuscular deficits. However, defining what constitutes ankle instability and categorizing them isn't necessarily consistent in the literature. So just be aware of that as you're receiving referrals and talking with physicians about these patients. A recent systematic review noted impaired postural control when standing with eyes closed on unstable surfaces, prolonged time to stabilize after a jump and decreased concentric inversion strength in those with chronic ankle instability. So if we're looking at some measurements or things that we can objectively assess in the clinic, that's what you should be looking at for chronic ankle instability. Decreased hip abduction and trunk strength and altered proximal lower extremity muscle activation patterns were also found in those with chronic ankle instability, which is what I was saying in terms of treating the patient all the way up the chain for what you see. The residual symptoms of pain after a lateral ankle sprain may be associated with a concurrent pathology. Studies identified that 64 to 77% of individuals with chronic ankle instability had current extra-articular conditions most commonly associated with peroneal tendon disorders. Uh, so again, those are going to go hand in hand. Um, some patients you'll see too that have these residual symptoms are also going to have chondral damage. Know that you're in MRIs, your kind of gold standard in terms of diagnosing um, osseous issues or chondral lesions. Um, the authors of the CPG also suggest that the factors to determine the prognosis following an ankle sprain are really undefined. So, you know, in terms of who's going to get better the quickest and how well they're going to recover and stuff, that really varies. Um, So that kind of encompasses the clinical course for conservative management, which is what most of your patients are going to go through. When non-surgical intervention is ineffective to address these symptoms and the patient's disability, they say that patients with mechanical instability, so those are the ones with the true joint laxity, may undergo repair or reconstruction of the lateral ligament complex. There's mixed literature about some of the outcomes of this, but there's some limited evidence for longer recovery times, higher incidences of ankle stiffness, and impaired ankle mobility and complications in the surgical groups, which is probably not surprising. I think that's a pretty standard risk with surgery. The overall conclusion was that there's insufficient evidence available from randomized control trials to recommend surgical or conservative treatment for those with acute acute lateral ligament sprains. It's not entirely up to you, obviously, as a physical therapist, to determine who's going to have surgery and who's not. But I think it really comes down to patient specifics. You know, if they're trying to get back to a really heavy job and they have to be on their feet all day and they work in construction and they're on uneven surfaces all day and their risk for recurrent injury is really high, They're probably going to be more of a surgical candidate than someone who has far much far lower physical demands in terms of treating pain and stiffness or swelling because that's probably going to be a persistent issue after surgery. Um, They say that the long-term follow-up found that both groups, the surgical and non-surgical, had recovered to their pre-injury level, and the prevalence of re-injury was 1 in 15 in the surgical group and 7 of 18 in the functional treatment group. So when they talk about long-term follow-up in that study specifically, they were talking about over 10 years' time, um, and they don't necessarily dictate or detail what the pre-surgery or pre-injury activity level was, so know that that's probably variable and probably not the best study to base all of our decisions on. The conclusion here is that the long-term results of surgical treatment of acute lateral ligament rupture of the ankle... um, show some signs of being comparable with functional treatment. Surgery appeared to decrease the prevalence of re-injury, potentially at the expense of increasing post-traumatic OA, some of that stiffness, the swelling, some of those secondary issues that surgery can bring about. So I think it ultimately comes down to what's the goal with the patient. Risk factors. So they divide it into two specific categories here. They talk about intrinsic factors and extrinsic factors. Intrinsic factors describe characteristics of an individual that increase their risk for a lateral ankle sprain and include the history of previous sprains, age, gender, their physical characteristics, so their height, their weight, their body mass, and any musculoskeletal characteristics such as balance, proprioception, range of motion, strength, their own anatomic alignment, and their own individual ligament laxity. Extrinsic factors describe features outside or external to the individual that may put an individual at risk for a lateral ankle sprain generally including the use of an external support, their level of competition in a sport, and participation in neuromuscular training. So the previous injury, um, previous ankle sprains have been, been identified as a risk factor for future sprains in the majority of the cohort studies that they looked at. Generally, age and gender were not found to be risk factors in an ankle sprain, However, what's important to note is the specific population of the military academy and armed services um, patients, those that were females in those populations were noted to be at a higher risk for ankle sprains. Additionally, they say females had a higher risk for grade one less severe injuries, whereas no gender difference was noted for grade two or grade three injuries. Studies have mostly noted that height and weight are not specific factors for ankle sprains. And in terms of musculoskeletal characteristics, there's inconsistent findings. Some studies have noted deficiencies in postural sway and a patient's ability to balance as predictors for an ankle sprain, whereas other studies have found those not to be predictors. So in addition, an association between reaction time and future ankle sprain has not been identified. So I think sometimes, um, you know, some training focuses on like reaction time and reactive training and that may or may not help because we don't know if that's truly a risk factor. Um, In terms of other musculoskeletal components, they have a study in here that reviewed range of motion. And the review noted that limited dorsiflexion was a predictor for lateral ankle sprains. Um, Individuals with an inflexible ankle, so average dorsiflexion total range of 34 degrees measured in weight-bearing, or five times more likely to suffer an ankle sprain compared to those with an average dorsiflexion range motion of 45 degrees measured in the weight-bearing position. Um, This same systematic review noted strength not to be a predictor for ankle sprain, and it should be noted that um, one of the studies included, not included by the review, found hip strength not to be a predictor. So again, those are individual studies. I think you have to look at the collective picture of the patient again but just something to be aware of that they mention in here. Um, characteristics related to anatomic alignment include tibial varum, their foot type, their arch type, their forefoot position and their rear foot position and any toe deformities, but those have not been strongly associated in prospective cohort studies to identifying um, a future risk for ankle sprains. General ligament laxity, ankle ligament laxity specifically and functional instability were not found to be predictors of future ankle sprains. However, they did identify that an increased Taylor tilt may be a factor in males, but not females. Better cardiovascular condition, as assessed through functional performance, was found to be a predictor of ankle sprains in males, but not females. And in contrast, another author found that maximal oxygen consumption was not a predictor predictor for ankle sprains. So again, I think there's some mixed research there about you know, overall wellness of a person being a factor or not. So these extrinsic factors that we discussed, they say that athletes who did not use a lace-up ankle brace when participating in high school football or basketball had a higher incidence of ankle injuries. And most of the evidence presented in systematic reviews indicate that external support is most effective in those with previous injuries. Um, So I think that's why we see a lot of athletes wearing them preemptively. I wouldn't discourage that it's based on that's based on moderate evidence they say high school age basketball and soccer players with a history of previous ankle sprain who did not participate in a balanced training program were at a greater risk for ankle sprains similarly athletes who had a previous injury were found to have a higher rate of ankle sprains when they did not participate in a proprioception program when compared to those who did. Balance and proprioceptive program have been generally consisted of ankle disc or wobble board activities. So again, none of these studies that they outline in here went into significant detail about exactly what interventions they did, but they focus on the program as a whole. I thought this was interesting because I think this has probably changed over the years, this kind of a recommendation, but they say wearing an air-celled shoe was identified as a risk risk factor for an ankle sprain, whereas no difference was noted when comparing high top versus low top shoes. I think, obviously, definitely in basketball, we see um, those athletes generally wearing a higher top shoe. um, It's probably not going to change their risk of having an ankle sprain. So, in summary of the risk factors, there's an increased risk of acute lateral ankle sprain in individuals who have a history of previous ankle sprain, do not use an external support, and do not properly warm up with static and dynamic movement before activity, do not have normal ankle dorsiflexion range of motion in the weight-bearing position, and do not participate in a balanced proprioceptive prevention program when there's a history of a previous injury. Um, In terms of ankle instability, there's an increased risk of developing true ankle instability in patients who have increased tailor curvature and are not using external support or did not perform a proprioception or balance exercises following an initial ankle sprain. Moving into the diagnosis and classification section, this really talks about the different levels and grades of ankle sprains. So they're generally graded one, two, and three to represent the extent and severity of ligament damage, with grade one being the least and grade three being the most severe type of injury. The tests to assess ligament stability, like the anterior drawer and the tailor tilt, have not shown desirable diagnostic accuracy when done in isolation. And I think we've been kind of repeating this over and over throughout these podcast episodes and in the CPGs and in the current concepts. When you're talking about using special tests for diagnostics, you really have to look at your cluster testing. That's really what's going to give you the most accurate outcome. So for the sake of this CPG, grade one is defined as a no loss of function, no ligamentous laxity, little or no hemorrhaging, no point tenderness, a decreased total ankle motion of five degrees or less, and swelling of half a centimeter or less. Grade two is defined as some loss of function, positive anterior drawer test, indicating ATFL involvement, a negative Taylor Taylor tilt test, indicating no calcaneal fibular involvement, no uh, mild hemorrhaging, point tenderness, decreased total ankle motion greater than five degrees, but less than 10 degrees, and swelling greater than half a centimeter, but less than two centimeters. A grade three sprain indicates a near total loss of function, a positive anterior drawer anterior tilt test, more significant hemorrhaging, extreme point tenderness, decreased total ankle motion greater than 10 degrees, and swelling greater than two centimeters. Grade three injuries have been further divided according to like a stress radiograph, with an anterior drawer movement of three millimeters or less being categorized as a grade three A, and anterior drawer movement of greater than three millimeters being categorized as a three B. So ankle instability, when symptoms of instability continue after a lateral ankle injury, patients are commonly diagnosed as having mechanical or functional, like we talked about, and like we already said, there's a discrepancy on how to objectively categorize those into two groups. Um, especially clinically. One way they recommend is by using what they call the Cumberland Ankle Instability Tool. And that's a nine item questionnaire with multiple responses designed to evaluate the severity of functional ankle instability. Eight of the nine items ask individuals to describe their instability or rolling over of their ankle during sport and daily activities. And then the other items inquire as to the individual's pain. It suggested that a score of 28 or higher on this outcome had a sensitivity and specificity of 82.9 and 74.4 in differentiating between those individuals with and without functional instability. So it's something to keep in mind if you're trying to figure out if someone is truly unstable or has that functional instability. This is a tool you can use. And if they're scoring higher than a 28, I think it's worth considering that they may have more of an insta- more of that functional instability and maybe, maybe more on that chronic end of things as opposed to just having a lateral ankle sprain. And therefore, it's probably going to need to treat it a little bit differently. Differential diagnosis. Um, <clears throat> two main things here that I want to go over other than just what other injuries we need to consider are the Ottawa ankle rules and the Bernese ankle rules. So the Ottawa ankle rules have become a well-established set of criteria for determining um, the appropriate level of concern for ruling out a fracture using radiographs. So the Ottawa ankle rules state that radiographs are indicated if there was pain in the malleolar zone and any of the following criteria are met. Tenderness along the tip of the posterior edge of the distal 6 centimeters of the lateral malleolus, tenderness along the medial malleolus, and or an inability to bear weight for four steps. Also, the Ottawa ankle rules state that radiographs are indicated if there was pain in the midfoot area and any of the following criteria are met. They also have tenderness at the base of the fifth mat, tenderness over the navicular bone, and or an inability to bear weight for four steps. Contrary, the Bernese ankle rules were developed to improve on the specificity of the Ottawa ankle rules in identifying a fracture Um, After identifying a low energy malleolar or midfoot trauma, the Bernie's mate, the, the Bernie's ankle rules consists of three consecutive steps an indirect fibular stress applied 10 centimeters proximal to the fibular tip, direct medial malleolar stress, and a simultaneous compression of the midfoot and hindfoot. So. In the study, in the prospective cohort of 364 patients who had sustained these injuries that they performed the Bernese ankle rolls on, the sensitivity and specificity were 1 and 0.91 respectively. So I would be aware of both of those. Um, also, when you talk about differential diagnosis in these populations, the other um, pathologies that need to be considered are the fibularis or the peroneal tendon, tendinopathies, um, a sensory nerve injury to the peroneal area, medial collateral ligament ankle sprain, Liz Frank fracture dislocation, a subtalar sprain, a spring ligament injury, an Achilles tendon rupture, a lateral tailor tailor process injury, or an anterior process of the calcaneus injury. Um, Obviously, a lot of those things aren't necessarily something we test for clinically. Some of them are, um, but a lot of them are not. And so that's where... Um, I would see the patient for a little while, and then if they are not improving, they probably need to be screened more and thoroughly for one of those other injuries. Um, The last comment I want to make here about imaging studies is, you know, like we've said in some of the other podcast episodes and CPGs, um, we're trying to move away from so much immediate imaging. You know, that's where things like the Ottawa ankle rules come in and your clinical prediction rules for the cervical spine and you know, when is imaging really indicated and what information is that going to give us to change a treatment plan? So generally, patients that are suspected to have an ankle sprain are treated conservatively for four to six weeks. And for those with persistent symptoms, including those consistent with ankle instability, radiographs, stress radiographs, magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, arthrography, uh, CT, ultrasonography, and or bone scans can be used to assess the integrity of the soft tissue and or osseous anatomy. So at that point, if they're not getting better, depending on what their clinical presentations like, they could have any number of other imaging done. But keep in mind, it's really done like we do any other imaging study. It's to rule out anything more sinister or that needs more significant medical treatment or to change the plan of care. Whether this person has instability and they're going to have surgery, you know, it'll go from there. So that kind of sums up the basic information about lateral ankle sprains. Before we move into examination, do you have anything you want to add, Alexis, so far?
0: No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that's all definitely straightforward. And I agree with the imaging studies is just knowing, you know, what are we really learning out of that and and when it's necessary and trying to move away from unnecessary imaging. So I think it's all pretty straightforward. So for
1: examination of these patients, the first thing they discuss are the outcome measures. And there's quite a few here. I will tell you when we get to the end, I'll summarize the couple that they really recommend is using. So the first one is the foot and ankle ability measure or the FAM. It's a region specific instrument designed to assess activity limitations and participation restrictions for individuals with generalized musculoskeletal foot and ankle disorders. So keep in mind, this is not just for your lateral ankle sprains. It consists of 21 item activities of daily living and separately scored eight items, like a subscale for sports. Um, it's got a strong evidence for content validity, construct validity, test retest reliability, and responsiveness. Um, the MCID is reported to be eight and nine points over a four-week time frame for the ADL and subsport scale, the sport subscale, respectively. The next one they suggest is the foot and ankle disability index, or the FADI, and it's a former version of the FAM. So these two instruments are identical with the exception of an additional five items found on the FADI. To be honest with you, I don't know that I would spend a ton of time worrying about this one. I think if you're familiar with the FAM, I think that's more commonly used at this point in time, and it's been a little bit um, more heavily studied in terms of validity and reliability. The next one is the LEFS. I think we're all pretty familiar with this, the lower extremity functional scale. Again, this is a broad region-specific measure appropriate for individuals with disorders of the hip, knee, ankle, or foot. Um, it consists of 20 items that assess activity limitations and participation restrictions, and the MCID is reported to be nine. I would say that clinically the LEFS is not my favorite for this specific population. However, if you're seeing someone come in and they're having you know, knee pain or they've had a recent knee injury that maybe predisposed them to this ankle sprain or they've had a hip injury in the past, that might be a better one to use. You're going to get a better overall idea about their function. It's not going to be just related to their ankle. The next one is the chronic ankle instability scale. And it was developed to quantify the multidimensional profile of patients with chronic ankle instability. So it has four subscale with a total of 14 items. And they're defined, those four subscales are defined as impairment, disability, participation, and emotion. Um, the, M, the minimal detectable change on this one is 4.7 points over a one-week interval. So, again, I'd say that one's really specific to your folks that are diagnosed with instability. The next one is one I'm not as familiar with clinically. You can chime in if you've used this one more, Alexis, but it's called the Sports Ankle Rating System. And it was developed as a region-specific measure consisting of both self-reported and clinician-completed outcome measures. And this system consists of the quality of life measure, the clinical rating score, and single assessment numeric evaluation. So the quality of life measure is a self-reported questionnaire designed to assess the athlete's quality of life after an ankle injury. The clinical rating score has both clinician and patient completed items, talking about some objective measures of pain, swelling, stiffness, and giving way. Um, And then the scores of the ankle sprain group for these were reported to be significantly different across the four-week evaluation interval. So I don't think that's terribly surprising. It's a very far more involved test. It's detailed in here. Um, again, I'm not sure it's one that's used that clinically. I, you see a lot more active folks than I do, Alexis. Do you use this one or do you see this one used?
0: Um, no, I've not
1: used this one okay. personally. Okay. It's another one I'd be aware of, but I don't know that it's the most important one. I don't know that clinically you're going to use it as much. Then the last one they talk about in here is the ankle joint functional assessment tool. It's a region-specific instrument that contains six items generally related to impairment and six generally related to their activity. Um, it was able to distinguish between those with functional ankle instability and normal individuals. So it's another one, again, for your folks that may be on that borderline of instability versus more of an, just an acute injury. And in summary, they suggest incorporating the FAM and the LEFS as part of your standard clinical examination. So in my clinical experience, those are the two most easily adapted to our daily clinical practice. Um, if you're dealing with an isolated foot and ankle injury, I'd say your FAM, if you're dealing with something that might be more multi-site or multi involvement, the left is probably your go-to. In terms of activity limitation and participation restrictions, basically, when you're evaluating a patient in the post-acute period following a recent or reoccurring lateral ankle sprain, assessment of their activity limitation, participation restriction, and symptom reproduction should include objective and reproducible measures such as and hop tests that assess performance with lateral movements, diagonal movements, and directional changes. So we're going to go through all of these. Um, Now some of these are very lengthy in terms of their descriptions in here. It's a lot to listen to. So I'm going to give you a brief outline of them. And if you're not familiar with them, know that it's detailed in here. And that, if you're following along, that starts on page A18 where it's going to outline all of these specific tests. The first one is the lateral hop for distance. It's the distance an individual travels laterally in three continuous hops on a single limb. The measurement method, um, the patient stands on their involved limb and hops as far as possible in a lateral direction with three continuous hops on the same leg, and the distance between the lateral heel at the starting point and the position of the lateral heel at the third hop is measured. For those patients with an acute injury that are not able to perform it, they receive a score of zero. The next one is the side hop. It's the amount of time needed to hop laterally back and forth over a 30-centimeter distance for 10 repetitions. So basically, the patient stands on their involved limb to the side of the starting line, and a second line is located 30 centimeters laterally. The patient's instructed to hop as fast as possible on the involved limb laterally back and forth over those lines for 10 repetitions. Um, They give you three, three practice trials, are completed before three maximal effort trials are timed. The three time tests are averaged, and a trial is discarded if the patient touches down with the contralateral limb or does not completely clear the 30 centimeter distance. The next one is a figure of eight, and it's the amount of time needed to hop on the involved limb twice around a standardized figure of eight patterned course. So they say that the patient stands on the involved limb behind a starting line, designated by one of two cones, and the second cone is placed five meters away. They're instructed to hop as fast as possible in a figure of eight pattern twice around the two cones. Again, you get three practice trials before three maximum effort trials are timed and the times are averaged. Again, the trial is no good if an individual does not complete the pattern or touches down on the contralateral limb. The six meter crossover hop, it's the amount of time needed to hop diagonally a distance of six meters. Um, That one's fairly straightforward. The next one is the square hop. It's the amount of time needed to hop in and out of a 40 by 40 centimeter square in a clockwise or counterclockwise direction, depending on if the right or left limb is being tested five times around the square, the patient's going. So a 40 by 40 centimeter square is marked on the floor with tape. You start outside the square. They're instructed to hop as fast as possible in the square and then hop on the side of the square that is clockwise if the right limb is being tested and if the left limb is being tested they're um, going counterclockwise. It's repeated for each of the four sides of the square so that the participant will return to the starting position in eight hops. The subject repeats this so that they jump around the square five times. Three practice trials, three maximum effort trials, they're averaged and again the trial is discarded if they touch down with the contralateral limb or they don't completely clear the tape outlining the square. The next one is the hopping course. It's the amount of time needed to hop through a course of eight squares. This one's really involved. So I'm not going to read this one because it goes into a lot of directional changes and they talk about degree measurements and stuff. So know that that one's in there. But obviously, I mean, just based on the name, you can deduce that that one's for much higher level. That's probably not something you're going to assess in the acute phase. The next one are physical impairment measures or what we would typically screen as our objective measures in an evaluation. First one is swelling. You're measuring the amount of fluid in the leg. They recommend using the figure eight method. They outline it in here if you're unfamiliar with that. The next one is ankle range of motion. They say passive non-weight bearing goniometric measurement of the ankle dorsiflexion with the knee extended in zero and flexed to 45 so that you're getting a measurement of true joint joint abilities, and also any gastric flexibility and or limitations when the knee is um, extended versus flexed. They also suggest measuring some tailored joint range of motion. Again, it's passive and non-weight bearing. They're looking at rear foot inversion and eversion, and they suggest doing this prone. Ankle, Ankle and foot supination and pronation. So this is what they consider active non-weight-bearing goniometric measurement of supination and pronation, which are movements that are intended to describe the combined movement of inversion, adduction, and plantar flexion and eversion, abduction, and dorsiflexion. Um, Basically, they're looking at, I can't say I measure this one a lot in the clinic. Um, it's definitely something I look at the quality of movement, how well are they able to handle a combined movement because a lot of dynamic activity involves those combined movements. So it's something I would look at. You know, it's in here. I'd be aware of how to measure it. I can't say clinically it's something I measure a whole lot. Moving into some tests, they reference the anterior drawer test, and it's the amount of anterior tailor translation in respect to the ankle mortis. So to perform this test, the patient the patient is positioned Sitting in 90 degrees of knee flexion with the leg relaxed and unsupported, one hand of the examiner is placed on the distal tibia while palpating the articulation between the lateral surface of the talus and the anterior aspect of the distal fibula. The second hand grasps the posterior aspect of the calcaneus. The test is performed by pulling the calcaneus and subsequently the talus in an anterior direction while the distal tibia is stabilized. And then they suggest doing this through different ankle positions, so different degrees of plantar flexion and dorsiflexion, and just to see if it changes at all. This test has a sensitivity of 0.8 and a specificity of 0.74. The next test they talk about is the Taylor tilt test. This test assesses the amount of Taylor inversion occurring within the ankle mortise. So the test is performed with the patient sitting in 90 degrees of knee flexion with their legs relaxed and unsupported One hand of the examiner grasps the distal tibia and fibula while the second hand grasps the calcaneus holding the ankle in a neutral position. The test is performed by inverting the calcaneus and subsequently the talus relative to the ankle mortis. This test has a sensitivity of 0.5 and a specificity of 0.88. The next one they talk about is isokinetic muscle strength testing of inversion and eversion. Basically, you're looking at the force production um, they say using an isokinetic dynamometer with the ankle position between 0 and 20 degrees of plantar flexion, and you're assessing it at a velocity of 30 degrees per second, 60 degrees per second, and 120 degrees per second, and 180 degrees per second, using both concentric and eccentric contractions. I would say if that's something available to you in the clinic, fantastic. Um, you know, if it's not, just be aware of it and um, clinically what it, what it would mean. Your single limb balance test is, I think, something we're all very familiar with, but essentially your ability to maintain your balance on your one limb. And the reason they mention this is because the diagnostic accuracy related to this population, it identifies those at risk for an ankle sprain with a sensitivity of 0.68 and a specificity of 0.56. The next one is what they call the balance error scoring system, and it's their ability to maintain balance in six different conditions which include double limb, single limb, and tandem stances on both firm and foam surfaces. So this test consists of counting the number of deviations from a standardized position, which they call an error, in a 20 second time period for each of the six conditions. So individuals with functional ankle instability scored more errors on the single limb firm, tandem foam, single limb foam, and had a total BESS score less than the healthy individuals, which again is not surprising. I would know that the average total scores on this test range from 11 to 13 errors or movements for those patients between 20 and 54 years old, and 15 to 21 errors for those patients between 55 and 60, 69. So those are your healthy controls. So if you're having a patient test more than that 13 errors in your younger folks and more than the 21 errors in your older folks, then they're probably at risk for another ankle sprain. The next couple I think we're really familiar with, the STAR excursion balance test. This is a commonly used one, but basically it assesses the um, patient's ability to maintain balance on one lower extremity while reaching as far as possible in eight different directions with the other one. So it's, again, it's eight lines from a center point around, um, arranged at 45 degree angles. You know, um, basically you're looking in a counterclockwise direction from anterior, anterior lateral, lateral, posterior lateral, posterior, posterior medial, medial, and anterior medial. Um, basically the subject stands with their involved lower extremity being in the center. And then you measure the maximum reaching distance of the contralateral lower extremity along each direction they're not allowed to move the support foot and keep their hands on their hips. So again, they get six practice and three test trials in each of the eight directions. One thing I think, you know, I do this test in the clinic quite a bit. Um, One thing I think to note with this test and um, the wide balance test, which is essentially the wide balance test is an adaptation of the STAR excursion balance test that involves performing reaches only to the anterior, anterior, posterior lateral and posterior medial directions. But one thing to know is that this test, when it's done based on the textbook per se, you get six practice trials and three test trials. That's a lot of trials of this. By the time you get to the test trials, you know, some of the fatigue and um, proprioceptive impairments within these patients are pretty evident that I think sometimes it's maybe not the truest assessment. You know, sometimes these are those kind of tests where sometimes quality of movement and documenting that, you know, how does their quality change versus just the quantity of movement. Yes, quantity helps us measure progress, but also quality I would be aware of. You know, I use this these tests a lot in my knee patients because it gives you a good idea of how well they can control various stress and all of that also. So just be aware of that. Do you have anything on examination, Alexis? I know that was kind of a lot of tests and measures, but they're all detailed in there. So if there's anything that seemed unclear, I would start there.
0: No, no, no. And I agree on the last one for sure. I think, and I mean, even with all of these, um, there's so much observation you can make with balance, you know, where are they? Are they using a a hip strategy versus an ankle strategy? And, um, you know, if you have them close their eyes, what does that do? Like, I play around with balance with almost all of my patients, whether they're ankle or not. Um, I just think it gives you a lot of information on what's going on with them. So, sure.
1: The last section that we're gonna move into here here are the interventions for the um, uh, ligament sprains. So they're essentially divided into two sections. The first section describes the evidence for interventions for patients in the protected motion phase of rehabilitation following a lateral ankle sprain. And studies that enrolled subjects within 72 hours following their injury or subjects who demonstrated a significant edema, pain, limited weight bearing, and overt gait deviations were included in this section. The protected motion phase of rehabilitation is generally associated with the acute phase of tissue healing. The second section discusses evidence for interventions in the progressive loading and sensory motor training phase of rehabilitation following a recent or recurring lateral ankle sprain. The progressive loading and sensory motor training phase generally corresponds to the post-acute period of um, rehabilitation. And studies in this section that enrolled subjects with injuries that were in the post-acute period, primary concerns included instability, weakness, limited balance responses, and intermittent edema. And this section also included studies that enrolled subjects with mechanical and or functional ankle instability, generally falling into that more chronic phase. So just be aware of that as you're looking through this part of the CPG, what symptoms are correlated with what they're considering the acute or protected motion phase which may or may not be directly correlated to our typical tissue healing phase and then compared to those in the, um, the controlled motion, or you know, more of that return to function chronic phase. So the first thing they talk about in the acute or protected motion phase is early weight bearing with support. And the recommendation here is that clinicians should advise patients with acute lateral ankle sprains to use an external support and to progressively bear weight on that affected limb. We don't want to maintain that non-weight bearing status. Um, The type of external support and gait assistive device recommended should be based on the severity of the injury, the phase of their tissue healing, the level of protection indicated, and any extent of pain and patient preference. Um, so obviously, if it's an older patient, you're probably not going to use crutches as much as you would a younger patient versus a walker. It just depends. In more severe injuries immobilization ranging from semi-rigid bracing to baloney casting may be indicated. I can't say I see a ton of baloney casting anymore in these folks. I think it's generally more uh, like the cam walkers or the boots because they really want to get them weight-bearing, and that sometimes is a good bridge. Uh, I can't say I generally see a lot of casting here. The next um, intervention in this acute um, protected motion phase that they discuss is manual therapy. They say clinicians should use manual therapy procedures such as lymphatic drainage, active and passive soft tissue and joint mobilization, and anterior to posterior tailor mobilization procedures within pain-free movement to reduce swelling, improve pain-free ankle and foot mobility, and normalize gait parameters in individuals with acute lateral ankle sprains so they actually do detail a few of those specific manual techniques. Um, that was really based on one level two study. So that's level B evidence, which is strong. Um, so just be aware of that. The next one is physical agents. And they break this down into subcategories. The first one is cryotherapy or icing. They um, Clinicians should use repeated intermittent applications of ice to reduce pain, decrease need for pain medication, and improve weight bearing following an acute ankle sprain. The next one is diathermy. They say that the use of diathermy found a significant reduction in edema and the examiner's subjective assessment of limping in individuals with acute ankle sprains who received the pulsing shortwave diathermy compared to the sham control treatment. Neither range of motion or strength appeared to benefit from shortwave diathermy. This is level C evidence, so I say it's guarded. Um, I think what's important to know here is what it may help with. Certainly, it's not going to help with any range of motion strength, but it may help in reduce the edema. And because of that, they may be able to ambulate with a little bit more of a normal gait pattern. The next one they discuss is electrotherapy, which is level D evidence, meaning moderate or variable evidence. There's evidence both for and against it. Um, they don't recommend using it or not using it. And then low-level laser, same kind of thing. Level D evidence, moderate. There's some some evidence for it, some evidence against it. They don't make a recommendation either way. The last section under physical agents for this acute phase group is ultrasound. And actually with strong level A evidence, they say clinicians should not use ultrasound for the management of acute ankle sprains. So that's pretty straightforward. Therapeutic exercise is the next section. And with level A evidence, They say clinicians should implement rehabilitation programs that include therapeutic exercise for patients with severe lateral ankle sprains. That being said, there's not um, like a hard and fast protocol on what interventions they did, what exactly the dosing was, the frequency was, all of that. Um, I will tell you, I think most of it dealt with like range of motion, some weight bearing, weight shifting, and starting to get some of those proprioceptive feedback things going again. Um, but there's not anything hard and fast outlined. Moving into the progressive loading, sensory motor training phase, or that more chronic phase, the first type of intervention they discuss is manual therapy. With level A evidence, so strong evidence, they say clinicians should include manual therapy procedures, such as graded joint mobilizations, manipulations, and non-weight-bearing and weight-bearing mobilizations with movement to improve ankle dorsiflexion, proprioception, and weight-bearing tolerance. So again, these patients, you're still good evidence for manual. It's the type of manual. So we're doing a little bit more graded activity, weight-bearing stuff, potentially a little bit more aggressive manual work to try to restore their full function. Um, In the therapeutic exercise and activity section in this group, um, one of the studies they mentioned, the authors concluded that functional exercises and activities, especially utilizing unstable surfaces, promote improvement in dynamic postural control. The general recommendation in this section, which, surprising to me, was actually a level C evidence, but they say that clinicians may include therapeutic exercises and activities such as weight-bearing functional exercises and single imbalance balance activities using unstable surfaces to improve mobility, strength, coordination, and postural control in this post-acute phase. Um, if you go through and read the studies that they outline in here, almost all of them talk about, like, a balance retraining program, some using a wobble board, some using unstable surfaces, Um, So I'm using like Alexis mentioned the changes in vision, Um, but basically using it as a, some of them say like 12 weeks, you know, generally around that time um, to try and improve that. Also, I would say in this category, they don't specifically mention it in their recommendation, but like we've talked about before, don't forget, you know, about your proximal structures. Don't forget about your hip strength. Don't forget about, you know, um, you know, getting good core control and stuff like that, because a lot of these Athletes do have a period in their athletic performance where they're on one leg. And so having good, you know, core and trunk strength to facilitate that is going to help. And then the last section here deals with sport-related activity training. Um, With level C evidence, they say clinicians can implement balance and sport-related activity training to reduce the risk of reoccurring ankle sprains in athletes. Um, I think that the reason that comes out is because the research is a little bit mixed. I think if you more generally look at the importance of specificity of training, I think it's pretty important. So I would encourage you, you know, just clinically not to shy away from really training these patients in some dynamic single leg work. Like I just said, most athletes involve single leg activity at some point in their sport. So that kind of wraps up the ankle stability and movement coordination, ankle sprain CPG. Um, Did you have anything you wanted to add, Alexis?
0: No, I mean, I think for the most part, this one is pretty straightforward. Um, I think like you mentioned in the beginning, we've all pretty much seen probably our fair share of ankle sprains. Um, you know, I definitely think realizing a lot of times we don't see these people at their initial ankle sprain. And so, you know, some of that instability is something to be aware of because they've probably had these before, whether it's mechanical or whether it's more of just that sensation from having multiple ankle sprains. Um But you know, it is dense. It's a lot of information. So make sure you really read through all of this. But um, I think it's all pretty straightforward. I don't think there's really anything in here that's particularly um, shocking or, you know, confusing. Perfect. So
1: as always, if you have any questions, please feel free to send us an email at certified podcast at gmail.com. We'll be happy to get back to you there. And coming up next, we're going to have plantar fasciitis.
0: Yep, thanks. All right, thank you very much.